So this evening, I want to talk about the quality of awakening that is called virya, which is translated as energy or sometimes even enthusiasm, wise effort. And it's one of the five spiritual faculties in the um, Eightfold Path and the Paramis. I mean, it really appears on many of the important lists of spiritual qualities. So energy, effort, courage, all of these meanings um, are in virya. And I want to talk about this quality tonight and kind of weave in how to bring this quality to bear on working with the more difficult states of mind and heart that you maybe could be possibly some of you encountering in the retreat. Uh, the other night, Jack defined this quality um, as the courage to be present, to stay with experience. And it's a kind of, it's both a method and a result that the more we can be present and stay with experience, the more we are present um, spontaneously in the midst of experience. And so the capacity for presence grows and it actually feeds our effort and energy. Our energy grows and feeds back. So it's actually one of those very positive loops. And, and it comes from that, it comes from many sources, but one of them is that very simple, repetitious, monotonous practice of bringing our attention back to being here. And some of you might have read a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, and in it he quotes um, a neurologist named Daniel Levitin who says, scientific studies show that 10,000 hours are required to achieve the level of mastery associated with being a world-class expert in anything. So we're not here to be, you know, world-class experts in anything, actually, but... um, We are going for refuge in the Dharma, and it can be encouraging to realize that many, many hours of practice are required uh, so that the attention begins to rest more and more of the time in the present moment. And and each time that happens, it's one of those, those small victories. It's one of those instances of really embodying our refuge in the Dharma and these teachings. And I think it's what these moments add up to what Philip was calling uh, showing up, showing up for our human life. But it's showing up in a particular way, showing up with these qualities of heart, courage, and balance. And my first teacher, a Korean Zen master named uh, Sansanim, after his 60th birthday, we called him Day Sansanim, because that honorific, if you actually managed to live as long as 60. That was a great thing. And that honorific means great. So in a way we called him Sansanim the Great after that. And he defined this quality of virya, he called it tri-mind. And he defined it as falling down a hundred times, getting up a hundred and one times. So it's a very simple quality. But I want to tell you a story about how this simple quality can really be so very powerful. And this is a story from uh, the war in Iraq. And it takes place in Najaf. And uh, the setting, which I actually saw on a CNN clip, um, the setting was a small unit of American soldiers were walking down a street and they were actually walking toward the mosque. And they were walking toward the mosque with the intention of protecting the mosque because there had been, um, there had been, I guess, uh, some terrorist attempts or fighting or unrest. So their intention was to protect the mosque. But when 
the Iraqi people saw them walking toward their sacred place, these soldiers, their fear just, you know, skyrocketed and the fear that it would be desecrated somehow. And so hundreds of people poured out of the buildings on either side of the soldiers. And their fists were waving, their throats tight, and they were pressing in on the Americans and just kind of shrieking. And the Americans were just, you know, glancing at each other in terror. And they were, the people were frantic with rage, just yelling and screaming. And, and this account was written by... Um, a reporter who was embedded with this unit, and he thought to himself, he said he thought, this is it. A shot will come from somewhere, the Americans will open fire, and the world will witness the Malay massacre of the Iraq war. And at that moment, an American officer stepped through the crowd, and he was holding his rifle high over his head with the barrel just, you know, pointed at the ground. And it was a very striking gesture. And it was, it was almost a biblical gesture. And the officer said to his unit, take a knee. And the officer stood there impassive behind his surfer sunglasses and the soldiers just looked at him as if he was crazy. And then one after another, swaying in their bulky armor and gear, they knelt before the boiling crowd and pointed their guns at the ground. The Iraqis fell silent, their anger subsided, and the officer ordered his men to withdraw. The officer in charge was named Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes, and the New Yorker reporter who wrote about this actually tracked him down at his home when he was back home months later in Iowa. And he wanted to find out, like, how did you learn to do that? How did you learn to tame a crowd like that? And to have that much presence of mind. And uh, he said, the colonel said, that for him it was just an obvious solution. It was just a gesture of respect. And shortly after that tense experience in Najaf, uh, the then new army chief of staff, General Shinseki, said, because this was in 2005 that this happened, he concluded that uh, the army's officers were not prepared to innovate in this incoherent, asymmetrical war, and that most of the training manuals in use were, quote, non-essential and meaningless. And in the same way, a lot of our usual strategies for dealing with the really difficult moments in our lives, in our practice. A lot of our usual strategies are, uh, we could call them non-essential, I don't know about meaningless, but they, the question is, do they work? You know, when the hindrances are, they're called hindrances to being present, and it's a little more complicated than that, but that word is, is, is familiar to most of you. And when our difficulties, whether we call them hindrances, difficult emotions, whatever name we want to use, we all know what we're referring to here. When the things that get in the way of our being present, when they crowd in, when they pour in, when they're shrieking to get our attention, what do we do? You know, do we inwardly shriek back in fear or rage, get completely reactive? Um, do we run? Do we hide? What strategies do we use? Or can we be as present as the Buddha, as that colonel, completely aware of the situation and dealing with it so wisely? The classical hindrances are, are five and it's good to list them because it helps to recognize them when they come up. 
And the recognizing of them is useful, especially if you are labeling, beginning to note or label some of um, the more intense experiences that are coming up for you. And so the first one is, is, um, it's just wanting lust. It's called desire, but desire has good meanings too. And this is really referring to, you know, the wanting things to be more, better, different, that is a disconnection from the way things are. All of these are strategies of disconnection from our experience in one way or another. And the first one is wanting them to be different, wanting that more or less somehow different. And the second one is um, getting angry or aggressive with our experience or pulling away from it, withdrawing, turning our backs on it entirely. It's called ill will. And we know what that means. And the third one, I'm not sure if it's restlessness, or, but restlessness includes... Restlessness is a big one, and it includes um, anxiety, anything that causes us to just leave, just go away, go somewhere else. And so there's restlessness. Then there's um, the one called sloth and torpor. Again, probably, it's a sort of Victorian language, but it really does capture it, doesn't it? That slippery, gooey, sliding into unconsciousness. And, um, and then the sneakiest one is doubt, because doubt presents itself as things that we listen to and believe. You know, can I do this? Am I doing it right? I'm not doing it right. Um, maybe if I tried something else, there's lots of forms that doubt can take. But those are the classical five, and just being able to name them and recognize them can be so helpful. I remember in my first Vipassana retreat, I had already been a Zen student for a couple years, but it was actually a retreat with Jack and uh, some of the other teachers. I think it was the second retreat, um, maybe the first one on the East Coast. And it was held at a, I think it was a boys' camp or something in, in Great Barrington. And and I had not, re- in Zen practice, we didn't receive these very specific teachings of the Buddha. Uh, and I had never been taught sort of how to name these hindrances. And so it was actually a great help. And, and I encourage you, I mean, this, it, it, this was a use of the imagination, but in the service of being present with experience. So I picked something that I like a lot, which is cookies, and imagined a series of cookie jars, and then would just take you know, each experience that was an experience of one of them and put it in that particular jar. It sounds really ridiculously simple, but it actually worked. So, yeah, I encourage you to experiment with, with your own methods and see, and see what works. I want to read you a different kind of um, list about the hindrances. And this is from one of the great Mahayana sutras. It's called the Flower Ornament Scripture, the Avatamsaka Sutra. And it's really one of the pillars of East Asian Buddhism. Nobody really knows who wrote it, but it's a very vast vision of reality and of the cosmos and of Buddha and Buddha in this um, text is reality itself, this very vast and interconnected reality. And it's, it's, it's very tiny print, and it's a very vast book, and this is only one of three volumes. So there's lots of it, too. Um, and in this, in this text, one of the ways um, of working with the the ways of working with the hindrances are said a little bit differently, and I want to share them with you because I really like them. This is talking about um, the quality of presence, of being mindful, of being concentrated, of being right here, right with, close to experience. And it says, this quality emits a light, and the light is called the adornment, 
that is something with which we would clothe ourselves. The adornment of tolerance. This light can awaken bad-tempered beings, causing them to get rid of anger and divorce conceit. I'm not sure what divorce conceit is, but I guess it's the wish to separate ourselves, right, from that which we don't like. Uh, And gladly be tolerant and harmonious when the violence of beings is hard to endure. This adornment of tolerance um, can free the heart. Then these qualities, again, of concentration and mindfulness also radiate a light called intrepidude. And this light can awaken the lazy. And in Sanskrit, um, the definition of lazy, it's really a little bit different. I like it. It means to not make use of. This light can awaken those of us who are not making use of the opportunity to be present in every moment, causing them to always respect the teachings, to support and respect the teachings. Mindfulness, concentration, emanate a light also called tranquility that can awaken the scatter-minded, causing them to detach from their greed, anger, and folly with their minds unmoving and stabilized. Doesn't that sound good? It also emanates a light called able to let go. This light can awaken miserly people and help them enjoy giving and get rid of their stubborn stinginess and cause their pure mind of generosity to grow. Anyway, you get the picture. It goes on and on. A light called fearlessness to shine on those in fear and cause the speedy annihilation of all harmful things. Um, So it's very inspiring. Uh, I thought it was very, very inspiring. And, And I want to tell you about it because I was very inspired by, uh, by getting to visit the Buddhist temple this summer uh, uh, called Borobudur in central Java. This is a huge, it's actually the largest Buddhist temple in the world. And it's a stupa. You don't go inside it like a temple, but you circumambulate it like a stupa. And it has different platforms. And I felt a kind of mysterious connection to this place. And I don't usually think, oh, I must have been here in a previous life or anything like that. But I felt that. Some kind of familiar um, at-home feeling. And as you circumambulate these platforms going higher and higher, there are stone carvings, beautiful, beautiful stone carvings. And they depict the life of the Buddha And they depict the spiritual journey sort of like a stone pilgrim's progress. And there are just thousands and thousands of beautiful images carved into the stone. And the stone carvers are showing just these vast worlds of experience and how it's possible for beings to awaken and be present in each of these worlds And at each level, there was a larger sense of reality, of presence, of aliveness. And that sense of being kind of stuck and encapsulated in our um, sometimes small, uh, compressed sense of being, suffering being, just evaporated as you moved up the, the platforms. And then there were a series of Buddhas, stupas, um, with they're almost like little stone bell cages with Buddhas inside and then on top a more empty space. Um, We couldn't go up to the top because um, there had been a lot of, um, there had been an eruption of a nearby volcano and so they were still cleaning the ash off the top level. But at the top is a kind of unfinished or empty Buddha. And I love that too because it represents to me, this quality of emerging wisdom, emerging presence, emerging mindfulness and wisdom that is us, um, not ever finished. So 
<clears throat> so with the effort to work with our difficult states, to recognize the hindrances, to be able to uh, be in less struggle and conflict with them, uh, with our ability to do this, things change. And I saw it, um, I see it in meeting with you even today, which is what, just the third day of our retreat. Uh, so many examples of, of these states of mind being worked with and actually transformed. You know, one person described being caught in just an intense whirlpool of the first hindrance of just lust and fantasy and just the swirling whirlpool and then realizing, having an insight. So much of my life has been spent in this state defending against my pain. And in the seeing of that, came tears, a complete softening and opening of the heart and tears of real compassion, genuine caring about this. And suddenly it's a whole different relationship to that experience. And somebody else came in kind of nervous to, because they were called interviews for a couple days, remember? before we changed it to meeting and explained that it's not an interview, they were called interviews. Anyway, somebody came in quite nervous and and had the presence and honesty to be able to say, I I really worry, I really want to be liked by the teachers. I want the teachers to like me. I mean, that's a very honest thing to say. And so the mind, of course, was trying to generate a really good report of what's been happening in the sitting and the walking and the metta and, and, and searching for ways that might be pleasing uh, and not probably half that time not even knowing who the teacher would be. So that makes it even harder to figure out how to please them. And <laughs> so it was getting into you know, quite a swivet about this. And, but because because he could recognize and give voice to, name what was going on, there was the ability to say, okay, well, what if this was simply set aside for a moment? Then what would be there? What would, what would be there? And what came up was so much sadness. So much sadness. And the sadness was much easier to bear and to work with. Because again, it was a kind of softening or tenderness of the heart, realizing, oh my gosh, um, that's painful to be so worried in that way. And we all are so worried about being liked and loved and lovable and, and so forth. And so once again, recognizing what was happening, not trying to change it or really struggle with it, being kind of caught in it, but then naming it and allowing something else to happen, which seems to be predictably a much more caring and compassionate response. This morning, somebody asked a question, how do you deal with this flood of thinking that happens? And, um, and she was saying that it's, it's so much harder not to get swept away into the stories and thinking and thoughts and emotions than uh, with the sounds or the breath or the sen- sensations in the body, the foundations of mindfulness that have been taught so far in the retreat. Now it just happens that over 2,500 years ago, somebody asked the Buddha the same question. And they asked, how, dear sir, did you cross the flood? Now they're talking about that flood of thoughts, that torrent of thinking, the flood, the flood of emotion. 
enemies? How did you cross the flood? And the Buddha responded, by not halting, friend, and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So this is a perfect uh, description of wise effort, the wise use of effort. And he said that, but the questioner wasn't entirely satisfied and said, but how, dear sir, how is it that by not halting and by not straining you cross the flood? And he said, well, when I came to a standstill, friend, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It's in this way, friend, that by not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. So what does that mean for us, to not halt or not strain the effort not to linger or hurry? It means that kindness of a whole different uh, relationship to effort and uh, a kind of balanced, more balanced effort uh, so that we can begin to develop the clarity and the calm and the kindness to meet and contain and cross the floods of, well, the joys and the sorrows of our life and uh, to transform our suffering into an ability to stay present with experience, to stay with ourselves and to forgive ourselves, to forgive ourselves no matter what. I think all of my Zen teachers, and I practiced Zen for decades, um, as well as Vipassana, and all of my Zen teachers really emphasize, just as we do here, this quality of repetition, of steadiness, of um, not halting and not straining, of just steadily keeping going. And to do that, it's, we need a kind of trust. And it's not really trusting in a belief or our ideas about things, but in this simple life that we're having here of daily practice. And all, of the, all the teachers emphasized routine and repetition and taught that just doing this practice over and over again without expecting any particular result but being as present as possible with it, that if we would just do this, something very true and subtle would happen. My, uh, my first teacher, his way of expressing himself was not so subtle, actually. And he, his English wasn't that great. So he had to be very, um, he was very emphatic about his way of teaching. And he said to us, um, you all want enlightenment. You come here and you really want something. You don't even know what it is, but you just know that you want it. Whatever it is, it sounds good and you want it. And he would say to us, it was like a kind of carrot, he'd say, okay, so if you really practice sincerely, just the way we're talking about it, if you really just keep going, moment, moment, just practice sincerely, he said, soon you will get everything. And that promise that we would get everything definitely inspired us. I mean, who wouldn't want everything? And we were young, too. You still think you can have everything. And it was, you know, we wanted it. So we practiced hard, we practiced hard, we supported each other, we practiced together. And I guess it, it took a while, maybe even a few years, till it dawned on me that what that promise of soon you will get everything, he meant it literally. He meant you will get everything. We thought we would get everything good, right? We thought we would get all the good stuff, the bliss, the freedom, the awakening, the peace. Um, We thought we would get everything good, but he meant you sit long enough. I mean, you've seen it already. You sit long enough and you get everything. So it takes great effort, great energy, great trust, uh, and to when we bring that to this practice every day. And the trust is also in, it's a kind of confidence that if we just do this, things will unfold naturally without forcing them. 
the, the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi once said that practice is like walking a long time in a light mist. You might walk and walk and walk and never really feel that you're getting wet. But when you arrive at where you're going, you will notice that your robe is soaked. He also said, if we walk in the mist together and you get impatient with me and you want to go ahead, that's all right. Please go ahead. And, and that, I think, is uh, it's like this Zen story of the monk who asks his teacher, you know, I'm really sincere, I'm really, I'm going to give it my all, I'm here, I'm doing it, I'm all in. How long is it going to take? <laughs> and the teacher says, probably about ten years. And, you know, he's taken aback. He says, I don't think I have ten years, so I'm going to, you know, what if I redouble my efforts? I'll sit into the night, I'm young, I'm strong, I can do double time, I can double down, I can really... And the teacher said, um, in that case, it will take twenty years. <laughs> um, So there are four great efforts that the Buddha talked about. Uh, I'm just going to list them and then sort of illustrate them. He talked about, the first is that we would apply effort or energy, would have the courage to protect our hearts from harmful states that have not arisen, that we would apply our energy to reduce and transform harmful states that have already appeared, that we would apply our energy to encourage and invoke beneficial and skillful qualities that have not yet arisen in us, and that we would apply our energy and effort to enhance and increase beneficial and skillful qualities that we already have, they have already appeared. Uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh has a very simple, down-to-earth way of describing these, uh, these four efforts. And he, he, just, he, he uses the metaphor of planting seeds, and he uses it f- for both negative and positive uh, qualities or mental states. And he says our efforts should be the first one, um, protecting our hearts, would be to not water the seeds of harm in us. And, and then the second would be when they arise, you know, we're already enraged and fantasizing revenge, um, wishing somebody or <laughs> harm, that does happen sometimes. And that then we would make the effort of not, uh, not watering that seed or not, or I think he calls it starving that seed, which means to turn our attention away and not indulge in those uh, particular kinds of fantasies. Then he says we would water the seeds that are good and beneficial and feed them um, once they've sprouted, feed their growth once they've sprouted. So uh, in this way we encourage the, the goodness and in ourselves, and, and we encourage the goodness in our children and, and in each other, too. And it's interesting, he doesn't really talk about the third one, which I want to talk about. Uh, the one about invoking the qualities that haven't yet arisen, or noticing when they haven't yet arisen. Like, nothing bad is happening, um, but there's a moment that is presenting itself. And uh, D.W. Winnicott, the famous British pediatrician and psychoanalyst, talked about a phenomenon. He called it, I mean, we all are aware from our own childhoods and um, from the suffering in the world of what happens when, uh, when something bad happens to us when we're little. Um, and he talked about another kind of suffering, not the suffering of something terrible happening um, 
or the suffering, you know, neglect, abuse, or just um, just bad things that may have nothing to do with our parents, but they happened to our family, to us. He talked about the suffering of the absence of something good happening when something could have. The times when something good could have happened, but nothing did. And I think that the third, this third great effort um, is about times like that, when maybe something good could have happened, but we overlooked that chance, and, and so nothing did. So here we have a great we have a great chance because our life is so simple and quiet to be attentive to the times when nothing bad's going on and we're not doing anything wrong or bad. We're not, um, you know, we're really doing the practice and, and being fully in the retreat and yet maybe there's something good that we could invite into our experience. And, and I want to offer you some ways to make that particular kind of effort, to bring that energy into experience. And these ways were, uh, again, they were, they're ways that, they're very simple. And I think sometimes that this virya or courage or energy uh, is actually our natural state and it gets covered over not just by the laziness or even the laziness that's translated as not making good use of our time, um, but there's another kind of energy that I know in my life can cover it over, and it's the energy of, of busyness. Of, and even in retreat, it is possible to experience that, to wonder, you know, will I have time to do my yogi job, but before then I'd like to get back to my room and wash my socks and then if I do my yogi job, will there be time to wash my hair afterwards? I mean, we can really, even here, generate a kind of busyness and cover over that natural virya, the energy, the courage to be present. So I think it may not be something that we have to generate so much as something that we need to uncover and um, open to release and appreciate and this is very much what Tija is, is doing in the Qigong practice. And I loved when he said in the posture um, hints, helpful hints yesterday, he talked about being in harmony with gravity. And that willingness to trust that the ground will hold us up, to trust the Dharma, to trust the forces of life, of nature. Um, that willingness to trust, I think, is a more gentle kind of courage of virya. And I, there's a couple lines of a poem I want to read to you that expresses this. It's a poem by Linda Paston, and she's, it's called Go Gentle. And she says, Remember when you taught me how to swim? Let go, you said. The lake will hold you up. Now I long to say, Mother, her mother was sick, Mother, let go, and death will hold you up. So that's a kind of ultimate trust in the processes of life, of our life, our being born and dying, that can... Uh, support us and bless us and empower our practice so that even in the midst of sometimes overlapping hindrances and troubles and sorrows and, and pain, um, we can find a way to, to be present. And the empowerment of this sutra is to to show us very, very simple ways that we can use. In a way, we're using our imagination with this, but it's a way to just expand our, our view of reality. The view of the Buddha and the Sutra is just this completely interconnected, coextensive reality. And, 
And it describes worlds within worlds within worlds and Buddha realms within Buddha realms. And you've all been traveling through these worlds, the world of, of pleasant, of unpleasant, of neither, of um, so many specific worlds. Uh, near where I have given this particular teaching, there's a bowling alley. And I think, you know, the bowling alley is a Buddha realm. It's a world that has bowling magazines and bowling clothes and bowling clubs and bowling gear and a place where you go bowl. And there's so many countless things like this. And uh, so in the sutra, what's fantastic uh, about the sutra is the image of a net of Indra, it's called. And some of you may be familiar with this image. But uh, in this net, it's like a kind of giant hairnet holding the whole galaxies, the, all the galaxies, the whole universe. And, um, and what's so great about it is that uh, to make a net, there has to be these you know, places where the net joins, right? And in each place, there's a jewel. Uh, it's said to be sometimes a pearl which reflects every other jewel um, in the net. It's a very vivid image of the interdependence of um, an interpenetration of everything. And we can start to see this with the simplest objects of our day. And this is the, um, the blessing that I want to share with you, that everything points to everything else in our consciousness. I really experienced that when I was preparing my Dharma talk. I had an outline, but every time I looked at the outline, it pointed to 17 different teachings and poems and ideas. And, you know, it just went like that. And, of course, um, one of my colleagues pointed out that part of the practice is to not go with all those associative branches (laughs) of thinking, right? There's a word for that. Um, and that was very helpful, actually, that particular pointing out. It was a reminder. Um, but here, we're going to, in a way, use some of that association or imagination to inspire our practice of, uh, and bring energy to our practice. The energy, not just the energy of um, activity, but the energy of trust, of allowing Uh, trusting the unfolding of life itself. So the first one is just to notice flowers. There are some flowers. There's some dried flowers still, and there's some little flowers, different places, because flowers represent the unfolding of qualities. Flowers are very impermanent. And one of the lessons of impermanence is that we mustn't wait too long before unfolding our qualities or doing that which will cultivate our qualities, um, which is, of course, what we're doing here. And flowers also symbolize the practices that we do, the methods that will help us unfold our qualities, unfold our wings. And then whenever we see fruit, and we see fruit every morning, we see fruit um, even when you bite into an apple or a piece of fruit, you can realize that that fruit stands for the fruits of our practice. So whatever benefits you've received from practicing, and by now you can probably point to one or two moments of benefit, you can offer some gratitude or appreciation when you see or eat a fruit. Um, And then there's umbrellas in the umbrella stands. We haven't had rain yet, but you can look at the umbrellas and they represent shelter or protection from the hindrances, the worries, the torments of our to-do, our worry, to-do, things to worry about list. And, And they also represent the embracing or including of everything in our experience so that uh, we can have this enlightened sphere of intention to include everything in our compassionate heart. And then there's chairs or cushions. I'm not going to go on too much longer, but there's a few things I want to mention. Chairs and cushions. It says, seats, thrones, and residences. So it could be your cushion, your chair, your room, 
your bed even. And they represent stability. The spiritual states that are our refuge, our home, our seat. Um, And they represent uh, the home of awareness, of mindfulness. Very, very simple. This one is my favorite. It's our earrings, necklaces, rings. Um, And if you don't wear any of those, just your clothing, your sweater, your hoodie, whatever it is, your t-shirts. And these represent the skills, uh, the virtues, the knowledge with which we adorn ourselves. And everybody has come here to study and practice and you've all learned things or you wouldn't be here. And to just every time you put something on, every time you see your clothes, I really enjoy my clothes. Every time um, to just realize that this is the adornment of everything we know and have learned. And then there's the sky and the clouds. And this is the boundlessness of the metta, of the Brahma-viharas, the joy, the equanimity, as vast as the ocean or the sky. There's light, the sunlight, the lights in the hall, the lights in our rooms, any candles that may burn at the altar. And this represents the light of Dharma, of truth. The Buddha's teaching to be a lamp, unto ourselves, like Philip was saying last night, to become our own teachers. And so there are many, many more. Rain is the showering of the Dharma, blessings and teachings. And, but the point is that we can just go through our day and be open to noticing the simple objects of our life Uh, the door. There's actually a bodhisattva, an awakened being in the sutra called um, door bolt or door handle. That's the level of detail that you can get into, the hinges. And they all express qualities of spiritual practice and awakening. So we'll we'll end with um, the door handle, bodhisattva. It says, like a broken vessel or the product of ego or the embodiment of various tendencies, this is like our bad habits and routines, the gateway to the multitude of ills, dukkha, sorrow, pain, that which should be abandoned. In other words, everything you would want to close your door against, right? So then every time you close a door, you could be closing your door to the lower realms of existence. You could be just closing the door and saying, you know what, I'm actually closing the door to this particular um, thought, to this particular train of thought, to this particular belief about myself that does not serve me. And so whenever you close the door to your room, you can close that door. You can also open the door. And this is, um, this is actually where I would like to, to end with uh, the empowerment and blessing of being able to see every time we open a door. And it can be opening a window. I mean, you can use your imagination. It can be just endless. But every time we open the door, may we open the door to this energy of keeping going day after day, sitting after sitting, walking after sitting, walking after walking, yes, walking after sitting. Can we open the door to keeping going with this? And can we open the door to trust, to trusting that this life can support us and hold us up? And may we open the door to more and more ease in our practice. And may we open the door to living with an open heart, which brings more ease into our lives. May we open the door of looking deeply 
into what is this life we're involved in here? What is this? All of these factors of awakening, these qualities of the heart, can we open the door to joy? May we open the door to joy. And may we open the door to equanimity. May we open the door to peace. And whatever it is you feel you need to support your life here, to support your life, to support the unfolding of your qualities, to support your growing in love and compassion, may you open the door to that and continue to uh, see that possibility and wish that for yourself. So let's just sit for a moment. May you open the door to feeling held. May you open the door to feeling blessed. May you open the door to moments of well-being. And may you open the door to trusting that the ingredients of this moment, of this moment of life, contain everything you need to wake up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.